Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Ouch. I am looking right now at Tesla bonds. They are plummeting. I want to bring in our own Joel Levington, senior credit analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, who's been tracking this. Wow. This has been a big swoon, not entirely unexpected, considering that these bonds were uh, among the most shorted they could possibly be. What's going on today? Well, uh, last night, Moody's downgraded them, uh, very much akin to the conversation that we had last week. <laughs> so hooray Props for- Props to you, yeah, for, for, for doing this. For, for Bloomberg. Um, and uh, and the bonds have uh, lost about three, three and a half points, um, or about 60, 65 basis points. At least that's the last quote that I saw. So uh, it looks like we're in the uh, about the $86 range. Yep, yep, we're still there. So that means a uh, yields maturity of about 7.66%, uh, give or take. Yep. Um, let's talk the broader picture here. Let's just sort of paint a scene for this company. They have the controversy going on that has certainly uh, plummeted or sort of punctured their stocks uh, with a car crash that ended up with the death of the driver of the car. Meanwhile, this is a business model that really hinges on the company's ability to access credit markets. How much does the downgrade and subsequent plunge in bond prices affect Tesla's ability to finance its penchant for burning through cash? Uh, that's a great question, Lisa. And it, really, it's uh, two ways. Uh, one, there are certain funds that can't buy triple C paper. Uh, and so now you have a triple C, B minus uh, issue, which makes it tougher in terms of financing. The second thing is with a bond at 86 and, uh, and yields uh, in the upper sevens, issuing unsecured debt, uh, straight unsecured debt, like what they did with the 2025 issue, is really not an option. Uh, it's, too, it's too costly. So then they have to start thinking about what is the right approach? Because everybody knows that they do have a liquidity event in front of them. Uh, will it be through a structured issue or will it be through uh, issuing straight equity or some sort of convertible? Okay, so when we spoke last time, you said that the leveraged loan market might be most attractive for uh, Tesla. And we did see Uber manage to successfully upsize their loan offering. I'm wondering at this point, is even the loan market off limits or is there enough of a bid coming from the collateralized loan obligations, these funds that uh, have to buy loans and that have raised a lot of money, that, that anyone can sell anything. Well, you know, I think, the, I think the Uber deal is actually a pretty interesting one because I think it went at LIBOR plus 400. So you're looking at a little over 6% coupon on that. Uh, and uh, that is without a credit rating on it. And so if you have a public company that still has a 40 plus billion dollar market cap on it, uh, one might say that they should be able to do as well uh, if not better than what Uber got. And, and maybe that kind of puts into a framework what a uh, unsecured deal versus a, a secure deal might look like. Um, so I guess maybe that kind of paints the picture as, is if they went down the road of issuing debt, the unsecured uh, market yeah. not being able to handle it, a, a secure deal maybe in the 6% range might be a better uh, option if you're the treasurer. All right, let's zoom out a little bit because there is sort of this existential question with Tesla right now, which is, you know, as money gets increasingly expensive for them, as they fail to prove that they can come through on their promises, 
when do they run out of leeway? So when do they run out of liquidity and face some serious issue if financing markets close up or at least become uh, really onerously expensive? Sure. I mean, without uh, doing any new issuance, I would say sometime in the first half of 2019, they're going to burn out of cash. Uh, our model last week, uh, we were talking about about a $2.3 billion cash usage this year. They have a billion two of debt maturities uh, into the first quarter of 2019. So that's uh, about equal to what the cash was at uh, at the end of the year. So they need to raise more money by the first part of next year or else they're out of business. Right. And I would say for all stakeholders, they're probably better off doing it sooner than later and probably more than what they need uh, today to get the liquidity issue uh, away from, you know, both the equity and the debt. So let's talk financing price. So if we end up with a yield of, say, 7.7%, and that is the going yield for Tesla to borrow money, is that sustainable for them? No. So, okay, but this is this is a really important point. So in yep. other words, because if you're seeing a 7.7% yield, which is effectively what is being implied in the 2025 bond, this is the bond that comes due in less than 10 years, yep. that's not a viable financing cost for them. No, it, I mean, when you're burning through cash uh, to create more liabilities that are uh, have a high coup- a cash coupon on it, does, does, does only makes the, the issue worse, which means that uh, a best case scenario would be that you'd issue a block of equity or maybe equity with a secured uh, debt package behind it to reduce the cash costs as opposed to the coupon. Would you say the time's running out here? Uh, I would say that they need to do something. Uh, and uh, again, I would, if I was in the treasurer seat at Tesla, I would be doing it sooner than later to get this issue off the table, at least for as kicking the can down the road as long as I could. You would also be investing in uh, some kind of anti-sweat measure because it seems like <laughs> a pretty hot seat to be on right now. Joel Levington, thank you so much for being with us. And uh, you did nail it last time we spoke. You said that this is going to likely be a company that is downgraded. It was downgraded and uh, now the bonds are plunging. Joel Levington, senior credit analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Always insightful, always uh, interesting. Thank you for being with us. People on both sides of the aisle agree that the U.S. has some unfair trade relationships, certainly with China, but also with the rest of the world. Joining us now, Robert Lawrence, professor of international trade and investment at the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. He's also a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics, also former economic advisor to President Bill Clinton. Robert Lawrence, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, A really important time to hear from you. So, uh, you know, since there is this sort of widely accepted unfair trade relationship that the U.S. has, certainly with China, what measure should we be looking at as a gauge of whether things are becoming more fair? Well, ultimately, um, I think, by the way, it's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Um, Ultimately, I think we just we have to look at uh, what kind of access our firms have to their market um, uh, and what kind of access their firms have to ours. And we have to compare that. And I think uh, there's no question that the Chinese have been using their market as a way to enforce uh, uh, U.S. firms and other foreign firms to transfer technology. 
They've also not been respecting intellectual property rights, which uh, are uh, part of the rules of the World Trade Organization. So, uh, Professor Lawrence, since you advised uh, former President Bill Clinton, I assume you line up more on that side of the aisle, uh, although I could be wrong. And I'm wondering whether coming from that vantage point, you can view anything that President Trump has done as being positive on this on this count. Well, I think um, uh, focusing on the question of our trade relationship with China and trying to improve some of the violations or deal with some of the violations, I think is well worth well worth doing. I think at times uh, what uh, the measures that they've actually taken are are pretty high-handed, and um, some of them actually contravene uh, rules that we've agreed to. So I, I think that's the part of it where I would take take difference with him. What do you mean uh, that they that they contravene with rules that we've already agreed to? Well, uh, you know, um, as a member of the World Trade Organization, you're not allowed to simply raise your tariffs against the products coming from other countries. Uh, uh, what you have to do is to uh, go to that body to prove that the other country is violating the agreement and then get permission to take retaliatory measures. But what President Trump did the other day was to simply unilaterally announce that the United States is going to put tariffs on up to uh, $60 billion worth of Chinese exports. That clearly violates the rules of the World Trade Organization. So if we want to have the moral high ground and uh, be persuasive in a sense that um, we're being wronged, it seems to me we, we ought to be adhering to the rules. Who, who stands to lose more, uh, the U.S. or China, if the uh, trade tensions do escalate? Well, I, I think we both lose a lot. Um, and and uh, it's hard to say who loses more, but, but the point is it's damaging to both of us. Uh, you've seen what the markets have done in the last two weeks. And clearly, that's in response, partly, uh, to these uh, um, aggressive trade actions. Uh, a huge number of American firms are now integrated with, with Chinese firms. A lot of the parts we buy uh, come from China. And those supply chains are now being threatened. And we're seeing the reflection of these threats uh, in, uh, in the stock evaluations of, of a lot of our firms. So, yes, the Chinese uh, will also lose uh, by uh, if, if we put tariffs against their products, uh, but our firms are also going to lose. And I think it could also threaten jobs uh, of people who work for those firms in the United States. So, Professor Lawrence, you've been on the inside of these negotiations. I'm sure you've dealt with China in particular, and I'm sure that this issue uh, was apparent to you back uh, when you were advising former President Bill Clinton. I'm wondering, is there something about China's approach, what they would like, uh, what their priorities are with respect to trade that is getting lost in some of the uh, in some of the, the big talk? Well, I think it's, you know, China is, 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 um, has two features. First, it's a very large and important economy, and that means we have to take it seriously. Uh, but the Chinese are still a poor economy, and uh, they're only at about 25% the level of American living standards. And uh, poor countries typically use their government to a much greater degree uh, to enhance their economic development. So uh, 
So there's basically a, a, a tension in China. It needs the rest of the world. It wants to sell to the rest of the world and to export. But at the same time, it also wants to nurture its own domestic economy and uh, sometimes in a way that discriminates against foreign firms. So China has a very complicated problem. Uh, how does it uh, engage with the world on the one hand? Uh, that means it ought to be uh, more open. And on the other hand, how does it develop its own economy? And that leads it to want to encourage uh, domestic development of technology and foreign firms to bring their latest technology to China. Professor Lawrence, there's a lot of focus on which American companies stand to lose the most in a possible trade war. People focus in on Boeing, for example, or Caterpillar. Perhaps we ought to be asking the flip question question, which is, which American companies stand to gain the most should uh, trade practices between the U.S. and China benefit the most? Wait, uh, so... So which companies will benefit the most from fairer trade? Well, well, um, clearly uh, our companies that produce intellectual property. So if we took our IT firms, if you took Microsoft uh, as an example, uh, their products are being copied uh, without uh, the royalties being paid. So I, I would say uh, heavily uh, uh, IT companies and, and companies that have, that have done a lot of research and development and uh, basically are being uh, copied or ripped off by the Chinese. Uh, so if we can level the playing field, if we can ensure that they enforce intellectual property protection, it's those kinds of companies uh, that are going to benefit. Not necessarily industrial companies. No, in fact, um, that's what's interesting because the whole uh, focus here is uh, of the policy has been very, very focused on, um, or a heavy element of it has been on intellectual uh, property. But there could be some industrial companies, uh, say in the steel industry, for yeah. example, and aluminum, who are going to get uh, more protection, and so uh, those companies will gain. There are solar panel. Uh, producing companies who who are now getting more protection. Yeah. So 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 it's it's a complicated mix. Uh, yes, the steel industries are going to gain, but all of the users of steel companies like Caterpillar and others could well lose from those tariffs. Robert Lawrence, thank you so much for being with us. Robert Lawrence, Professor of International Trade and Investment at the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University, also former economic advisor to the former President Bill Clinton and senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Yesterday, as news emerged that Facebook chief executive Mark Zuckerberg planned to head to Washington, D.C. to testify in front of Congress on April 12th, people started talking about how he tends to sweat when he's nervous. So with that image in mind, I want to bring in Max Chafkin, technology reporter for Bloomberg Businessweek. Clearly, he's been sweating a lot over the past few weeks. And today they announced some measures uh, that boosted their stock a quarter of a percent. 
what are these measures? Yeah, I, I wouldn't get too excited about any of this, um, but they said that they were redesigning the sort of screen inside of the app where users can, um, you know, update their privacy settings. So the idea is to, to make it easier for people to say, you know, cut off some of Facebook's data access. Now, this is something that Facebook, this is kind of Facebook's go-to move just, it, yeah, sorry. I, I, no, I want to interrupt you just there for one second before you get on to sort of the larger issue. Specifically, is this cutting off Facebook's ability to sort of see what you do on other platforms? In other words, like Google or your, you know, your Google searches or your, you know, all the cookies that you incur. Is this what we're talking about here? No, no, okay. no, no, no. This is just uh, making it easier for you to sort of toggle like whether or not, you know, you're sharing your phone number with your Facebook friends or or things like that. This is a, a, a very much an incremental step. Um, and it kind of kind of continues what fa- the position that Facebook has historically taken, which is if you're upset about the amount of data that's out there about you on the internet, you know, it's your job to sort of fix it. And I think that is the sort of philosophical debate that's been happening for a while in Europe and that is starting to move here. The question is, should Facebook proactively be doing more to keep users' data safe? And and right now, even with this um, sort of modest tweak that they've made that's that sent the stock price up just a tiny bit, uh, it's like I said, it's it's still saying, you know, you still have to do this. There's a difference between a lot of people seeing information that you voluntarily put out there for a pretty big network of people, right? I mean, on one hand, you could say, buyer beware, you agreed to let people see it when you posted it there for everybody to see. I mean, it's sort of a tautology. There's a difference with selling the data of all of your clicks on that platform, of what links you click on, of, you know, who you follow, of, you know, the the cookies that you incur from other websites that allow advertisers to target uh, messages to you. Have they addressed that aspect? They're starting to. Um, last week, uh, sort of amid this furor of the uh, around Cambridge Analytica, this um, you know British consultancy that had um, basically improperly acquired some user da- user data, Facebook sort of said they're gonna they're gonna do try to do a better job cutting these third party apps off if they're not using your data and making it easier for you to tell which apps have access to your data. They've also sort of said they're gonna do audits of of basically anyone who had access to this kind of data to make sure that a, a sort of Cambridge Analytica situation didn't happen someplace else. But the, the problem is there's just so much of this sort of washing around out there. It's, it's also not clear like how the audits would work or how they would um, be able to really know. Um, from what we know of this Cambridge Analytica situation, Facebook was aware of this for a long time. Cambridge Analytica had said they had deleted the data. Um, and then it came out through the New York Times is reporting that through a whistleblower that they in fact hadn't. So so it's this kind of thing where it's 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 pretty hard to see how Facebook addresses this in an easy way, and that's why you know the stock price is so depressed uh, over the past two weeks. I'm just wondering, you know, how many band aids could Facebook really throw on this, or does this problem really puncture something fundamentally about Facebook's business model? We don't know yet. 
And I, but I do think there's a chance, a non-zero chance, that this could seriously impact Facebook's business model. The there is this sort, like I said, there's this sort of philosophical question: Do you do you have to opt out or do you have to opt in? You could imagine. Uh, the FTC is is looking into Facebook once again. European regulators have been pushing in this direction. Uh, you could imagine a rule that sort of says that users have to check a box or check a bunch of boxes or go through a bunch of different screens to allow Facebook to use the kind of data that they're using now in advertising. And if users have to go through a bunch of steps, that could cause many, many of them to, to stop doing that, which could, in essence, break Facebook's amazing business model right now. Now, I think... Uh, on the other hand, I, I think that is probably not the most likely outcome. I think the most likely outcome is Facebook makes some small fixes and and we all get outraged for a while and people probably go back to, to using this exceedingly popular app. What about April 12th? What are you expecting to hear? Zuckerberg has, you mentioned the sweating. He has... <laughs> well, that's such a visceral image. I mean... <laughs> he's gotten better. Um, I think people who... <laughs> with the who, sweat? With, with, yeah, sure. With his temperature control and also... Uh, <laughs> his with his usage. With his poise. I, I think <laughs> if, if you watch the, the CNN um, interview that, that, that happened last week, I would say it was maybe above average for him, probably below average for, you know, your average chief executive, but definitely an, definitely an improvement. I think that where Facebook has struggled is that this is a company that is super cerebral and Zuckerberg has sort of not been willing to engage on a kind of normal emotional level. He hasn't really apologized. Um, And I think, you know, he would do well to, to just to stop with the pretense of, of, of trying to sort of, you know, come up with like a zillion technical reasons why Facebook did nothing wrong uh, and just say, hey, you know, we're sorry, we're, we're trying to fix this. Um, I think I think if we get something like that, that that'll probably move things in a positive direction for, for the company. So he has about two weeks to learn how to eat crow. Max Chafkin, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, always love speaking with you. Max Chafkin, technology reporter for Bloomberg Business Week. It has been a really difficult week for Max between Facebook, Uber, and the like. We'll be talking more with him, I'm sure, in the upcoming weeks. We talk about alternative assets sometimes. I want to talk about an asset that has a uh, happens to have an additional benefit of being able to make you feel uh, pretty good and actually taste good too. Uh, I'm talking about wine, and we're talking with Stephen Ronicleve. He is global beverages strategist at Rabobank International. He did not bring a bottle of wine with him. My uh, apologies. But we'll, but we'll <laughs> let that slide. Uh, Stephen, I want to talk with you uh, about wine in the context of what we've seen in high-end art markets over the past few years. We've seen huge uh, auctions, record prices being paid as a lot of very wealthy families and individuals seek some kind of uncorrelated asset. To what degree are you seeing the same type of activity in high-end wine markets? Yeah, it's certainly become a very interesting asset class, people looking at wine as an alternative investment, and and it does perform well. Yeah. Overall, I think the returns. It's not something that I that I kind of track on a day to day basis, but the returns that I've seen have been have been very very attractive. It's 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 been something that uh, 
uh, people have looked at as an alternative investment. And, and as you say, worst case scenario, you can drown your sorrows if things go bad. Right? <laughs> you can pop a cork. You I guess the, cork. I, the reason why I start there is I'm trying to understand to what degree the wine market, I'm talking the high-end wine market, is uh, composed of connoisseurs. And to what degree is it, does it include a lot of speculators? Uh, there's certainly a mix. I think investors are certainly getting into it, looking at it as uh, you know, kind of looking and seeing the the uh, the improvement in value that you've seen in wine as an asset class. It's performed very well. Uh, but then there's also a whole different set of folks that that kind of get into collecting wine because they're passionate about it and and try to find unique vintages and you know building up their wine cellar and having something to entertain and and so forth. How much have uh, some wine prices increased? You know, it's really interesting when when you look at wine prices. It's 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 been uh, at the retail level. It's been the high end and the very low end that have been able to take price increases. The middle, kind of that, kind of ten to twenty dollars or, or seven to twenty dollars. That there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of competition, a lot of new players coming in, br- new brands being introduced, a lot of there's some pricing pressure in that segment at at, at retail, but the low end because uh, they've been able to take price increases, supply has kind of dried up globally, uh, and then at the high end there there seems to be appetite from uh, from from fine wine buyers to to accept price increases, and part of it is because you have uh, limited limited growth in places like Napa. You, you can't plant any more grapes. People understand that, that there's more and more demand for some of these wines uh, and you can't and supply is constrained. Can you give us a sense of just how much some things have, impre- uh, have increased on the high end in cost? Well, you know, we one of the things that we look at a lot is grape pricing in Napa, uh, and that's just been growing astronomically lately. Uh, I think, you know, just a few years ago it was uh, I would say around four or five thousand dollars. Now we're up to, you know, we're hitting closer to eight thousand dollars a ton. And and when you look at how it's spread out, there used to be a very good chunk of wine grapes, the Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon, that would sell for, you know, about ten percent of the the crop would sell for under twenty five hundred dollars. Now there's almost none of that left. All of that is getting bit up into higher things. And when you look out, you see, you know, lots and lots, a, a good chunk, maybe five or 10% selling for $15,000 a ton. And that's, that's just an astronomical price in, by global standards. Wouldn't somebody who spends a couple thousand dollars on a bottle of wine be worried about opening it and finding out it's vinegar? I think if you're spending, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean really, this, a, yeah, this seems like a, a serious concern and maybe they're not planning to ever open it. I don't know. No, I think if you're, I, I think it is a concern, but I think if uh, if you're spending thousands of dollars on a bottle of wine, you can, you can absorb that cost. Let's talk about the method of sales. I know uh, certainly the way that people are buying clothes and food has changed, moved more online. What about wine? Yeah, that's that's been this, uh, the subject of a study that we've just put out looking at uh, the growth in online in, in e-commerce and online wine sales. And, and it's been it's been exploding through a number of different channels. You know, you have kind of the, the drizzlies of the world, people buying for, for immediate delivery. You have specialty wine retailers like wine.com and others and you have kind of e-commerce and then there's online grocery and you know the grocers have been kind of lagging behind the rest of of retailers 
the obviously the the acquisition of of Whole Foods by Amazon has kind of lit a fire under everyone, and you know that's where we see enormous potential for growth, particularly for wine. So, who is the biggest beneficiary from that trend accelerating, and who uh, is potentially the biggest loser? Well, you know, this is something that we talk about a lot. I think there there's opportunities for everyone. I, I think there's great opportunities for retailers to build this up. They still have some pieces to figure out. Some of them are a bit behind in the development of their website. They have to figure out last mile deliveries, et cetera. But I think the, the you know, in terms of brand owners, we see big opportunities for large brand owners to continue shifting sales online. Uh, small brand owners can look at this and say, hey, you know, there's virtually limitless shelf space online. We have a chance to gain share. Uh, but then the other one that we kind of look at, and if you pull up some of these websites from retailers is, is private label. Uh, private label has a great chance to grow share because the retailer can position them on that first page. So it's 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 going to be for brand owners. It's going to be who figures out how to how to really build brands online, and who invests in search engine optimization and all of those things to be successful. You want to make sure that you get that first sale because then you pop up. So who's the biggest uh, brick and mortar wine seller? I uh, believe it's still Costco. Total Wine and More has been has been growing very aggressively. Both uh, both do a great job, um, and and then you have your your traditional retailers like Kroger's and Safeways that that sell a fair amount of wine as well. Do you order wine online? I have. Uh, it's it's challenging, and this is something that we talk about a lot. You know, if you want to get uh, kind of immediate delivery, if you want to shop online, like when you're buying groceries, where I live in in Westchester, it's it's harder to get it delivered, and that's the problem. That's the challenge that that online has because you have to have somebody there to sign for it, and then it creates a logistical problem for delivery of the entire package if you have wine in that, right? And also, if you're going to somebody's dinner party and you realize at the last minute you need a bottle of wine, it doesn't work to suddenly uh, just go and press a button and then wait for a couple days. No, no. <laughs> but that's what the Drizzly and, and mini bars do really well, right? They can do that because they're they're local if you have access to them. Stephen Ronacleave, yeah. thank you so much for being with us. Stephen Ronacleave is global beverages strategist. Fabulous job, by the way. I can only begin <laughs> to imagine uh, what your tours include. Oh, global- no, no. Life is hard. Life yeah. Is oh, hard. life seems brutal for you. <laughs> Stephen Ronacleave, Global Beverages Strategist at Rabobank International. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.